All right, let's turn back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 this morning. It's said that the famous producer Alfred Hitchcock often made cameo appearances in many of his films. I don't know about you, but I've witnessed a few of those appearances, but they're not always easy to detect. And such an appearance is often brief, and it only occurs one time. And we could say the same is true when we observe some of the characters of the Christmas story. Of course, the star, the main character, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything points to him, and everything is really about him. But many of the other characters in the gospel narratives only have a brief role to play, and then we hear of them no more In the scriptures, their appearance is like a cameo. Perhaps uh, Joseph would be one of those, the adoptive father of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many sermons have you heard about Joseph? What about Simeon and Anna, who greet the newborn Jesus at his first presentation in the temple? And then there are the Magi, the Western, uh, the wise men from the east, And then the shepherds out in the field always have a role in our Christmas plays. And even Mary, who is highly esteemed, is seldom mentioned after the birth of the Lord Jesus. And if we have pushed the account back even farther, we come to Zechariah and Elizabeth that we read about earlier this morning. And they are going to be the parents of John the Baptist, who becomes the last prophet of God in the old age and the forerunner of the Messiah. So all these people were chosen by God to play a role in the coming of Jesus into the sin-darkened world. As Isaiah prophesied, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. This was the climate and Judea at the time prior to Christ's birth. There had been no word from the Lord for over four centuries. They were under the rule of a foreign power. The faithful remnant was dwindling, and many of God's people just didn't seem to care anymore. Some had become corrupt. Many had given up hope of any kind of change. They had forgotten about their history. They had become discouraged about God's program. And the future to them seemed to be very dark and dismal. But God began to make himself known again in this time of spiritual decline. Among the first vessels of hope at the dawning of the new age of Christ were Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were not unlike us. They were ordinary folks who were just doing their best to follow the Lord in discouraging times. Little did they know that the Lord singled them out to bring into the world the one who would shine the light on the one who was the true light of the world. So let's ask God's blessing as we study the lives of these two individuals. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful today for the Christmas narratives that explain to us the 
situation when Jesus came into the world to fulfill your uh, redemption program. We're thankful for these characters who only appear in this story and nowhere else in Scripture. But Lord, they had an important role to play. And as we look at their lives, may we be encouraged to carry on for you, no matter what the circumstances might be in the world, and to serve you with whole hearts. May they be an inspiration to us during this Christmas season, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look here at these two people who became vessels of hope in God's program in the days in which they lived. The first thing I want to share with you is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful to God in discouraging times. So I want to, first of all, look at the national scene. Our story begins with the words, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. That's the natural uh, or national setting. What do we know about this man, Herod? Well, he was known as Herod the Great, and he reigned in Judea from 37 to 4 BC. He was not even fully Jewish. He was half Edomite, a descendant of Esau. And of course, the Edomites were always enemies of Israel. And yet here this man is ruling over them. He was the first of a dynasty of rulers who were always in conflict with God, with Christ and his church. And he is the one who ordered the death of the infants in Bethlehem in an attempt to rid himself of a rival king who he heard was coming. Now Herod's rule was conferred by the Roman Senate. So he was under the emperor of Rome. And historically, if you move back in the history of the Jews during the intertestamental period, there were the days of the Maccabees. And those Jews, many of them, had lost their lives fighting against the Greek rule, against the Roman rule. But now the nation is ruled by a Roman-endorsed king, a vassal of an empire that reigned with an iron fist. Herod was a great builder, and he was in the process of reconstructing the temple in Jerusalem. And it was really a grand, a marvelous work. It took over 40 years to complete. As a matter of fact, he died before it was finished. But atop the gates of that religious specter again perched the eagle of Rome an emblem of its dominion and power. In those days, even the spiritual leaders, quote-unquote, of Israel were corrupt. The factions of Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians were constantly vying for power and recognition. They did not care about the spiritual condition of themselves or the people of Israel. Political currying trumped everything. And the high priests were the most corrupt of all. So the people indeed were living in dark and discouraging days. And it's no wonder that they needed to have someone come and help them turn back to the Lord as suggested in verses 16 and 17. In the words of G. Campbell Morgan, the king was degenerate, 
the temple desecrated, the priesthood debased, and the people degraded. It seemed like God was no longer present and certainly not moving his program forward in the days of Herod. But then we look on the personal scene and we see something a little bit different. We see here that not only was King Herod in control, so to speak, but other people come on the scene, such as Zacharias, a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. As we look at them, let's, let's discover some things about them revealed here in Scripture. First of all, their rich pedigree in verse 5. Zacharias was a priest. He was of the division of Abijah. Now, after the Babylonian captivity, only four orders of the priesthood returned to the land of Judah. And these were then reformed into 24 divisions or groups that corresponded to the Old Testament pattern. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. What a great name in a day when everybody thought of the Lord forgot about them. Through him, the Lord begins to show the nation that he has not forgotten. He does remember. Elizabeth also had a priestly heritage, tracing her lineage back to Aaron. So this would be a double blessing to a man ordained to be a priest of God. Elizabeth, interestingly, means the oath of God. Another reminder that God is always faithful to his word. And as I thought about this, I just put their names together and the meaning of them. And it would be, the Lord remembers the oath of God. So the Lord gave an oath that he would not forsake his people, that he would redeem them. And now we see that work of redemption beginning to come to fruition in the real world. God chose this couple to bring his servant John into the world in fulfillment of Malachi Chapter 3, verse 1, the last book written before this four-century period of silence. And it reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He said that 400 years ago. But he kept his oath, and now these things are coming to fruition. In verse 6, we note their faithful character. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Righteousness speaks of both character and works, and it indicates one who stands in right relationship to the Lord, not on the basis of their own character or works, but because of their faith in God. So these were righteous people in the spiritual sense. They were also obedient to the Lord's commands, and that is always an expression of your devotion to the Lord, of your uh, faith in him to help you serve him. And then the term blameless is something we find often in the New Testament. It does not imply that they were perfect, but they were strictly adhering to the code of God that you found in the Old Testament commandments. So nobody could look at their life 
and point the finger and said they were not obeying God, they were being rebellious, or they were out of line. And as such, these two people would have been a pillar of uh, uh, spiritual leadership in their community. They would have been examples to the people of faithful ones who are going to follow God no matter what's going on in their world. Now, things were not all rosy for this couple. For you find in verse 7, their severe affliction. We're told here, that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. By this time in their life, it was probably highly doubtful they could have a child. And some considered uh, in that culture that if you were not able to have a child, it was because of some sin on your part. But Luke has made it clear that was not the case with this couple. However, it would bring a sense of reproach and disappointment and perhaps shame for a woman of Israel not to have a family. This is one of the great hopes of a young girl growing up. And as soon as she is of marriageable age, which was much earlier than we are now, they would look forward to having children and a family and maybe even being the mother of Messiah. And not to be able to have that fulfilled would be extremely disappointing. And many people in their sinfulness would look down upon it as a judgment of God. So here we have an enigma. A righteous couple who can't have children. Yet when we think back in history in our study of Genesis... They joined the ranks of other barren couples that God used to bring great leaders into the world, sometimes even in a miraculous way. <clears throat> Think of Abraham and Sarah bringing forth Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebekah can't have a child. But then they're able to have Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, of course, is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Elkanah and Hannah bring forth Samuel, the great prophet. And Manoah and his wife have Samson, who was a judge in Israel. One author suggests that Elizabeth may have been a symbol of Israel's hopeless condition. Her sense of disgrace is Israel's disgrace of spiritual barrenness. And her disappointment and her grief is that of that of the nation as well. Well, Zechariah also had an important ministry, and we're included in the greatest day of his life as far as, far as his uh, religious duties were concerned in verses 8 to 10. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, we may not think that's such a big deal, but it really was. In that time, as a priest, you would serve God only two weeks out of the year. So two times of the year, you would go up and you would perform the duties of a priest so that all the orders uh, uh, were involved each year in sending their priests 
which could have been around 300 men, to do this work at the temple. But because of the number of priests, a lot was cast to determine which one would have the joy and responsibility of going into the Holy of Holies and uh, lighting the altar of incense that represented the prayers of God's people. And if you were uh, fortunate enough to be selected through that lot, you could only perform that duty one time in your whole life. And this is aged Zechariah able to perform that duty in his lifetime. So this was probably the highlight of his whole career as a priest, that he could go in and offer the incense to the Lord at the time of daily prayer on his session, on his duty. And as he prayed, let me explain what goes on there. The priest that's chosen would enter the holy place that's before the Holy of Holies where the Lord was supposed to dwell with two attendants carrying coals of fire. They would put these on the altar of incense which would light the uh, the incense and cause the smoke to rise up to God. Then they would depart and that priest would be there alone. The officiating priest would be outside of the door and he would give the signal for the priest then to uh, begin to pray, to prostrate himself on his face before the altar and lift up his prayers to God. And while that was going on, either in the morning or the evening sacrifice, the two times of daily prayer, it says in verse 10, the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So God's people, the faithful ones, had come together to pray before him. Now, God uses faithful believers in his program of redemption. Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful believers in the Lord. They're experiencing the disappointment of not having a child their whole married life the hardships and the discouragements of the day in which they lived when so many were unfaithful, uh, the, the political situation is not anything like they would prefer, but they're doing all the duties that they're responsible for without complaint before the Lord. They're serving in the tasks that he's called them to do. They're ordinary folks, not much different than we are, but they're, uh, they're people uh, that you wouldn't normally expect to be movers and shakers until God intervenes in their lives and begins to use them in a special way in his program, bringing the Messiah into the world. And on both a national and personal level, there are always going to be dark, disappointing, discouraging times. We often talk about the good old days, but when you go back and you think about it, there never have been totally good old days. There might be good days in the world, but someplace there's always fighting and killing going on. There might be good days in your life, but there are always days that are common. They're hard days. They're, they're discouraging days. Sometimes it seems like God abandons his people. Sometimes it feels like maybe his judgment's upon us. But we must always understand that God's program moves forward with his faithful people or without people. 
he still will move his program forward. And we need to be like this couple in the days in which we live, no matter what's going on in the world, and follow the Lord, be vessels of hope in hard times. Uh, there, that we will cooperate with the Lord and move forward his program. So that means we support his church. That means we proclaim and finance the gospel. That means we live in harmony with each other. And that means we grow together in grace and peace. We need to be people that are faithful like this couple was. Now let's look at something else here. Verses 11 to 25 and see how the Lord communicated with his faithful vessels. And first of all, we see here, he communicates with them at a time of worship and prayer. Now, as we've seen, Zacharias is in the posture of prayer. In this case, he's flat on his face before the Holy of Holies, where the presence of the Lord was supposed to be. Now, what do you think he was praying about? In the context of verse 13, we might assume he was asking the Lord again for a child. Maybe even a son to carry on the family name. Maybe even the Messiah. That surely, at least in the past, would have been one of his prayers. However, as we look at the response to the angel and the word that he comes to him, we might wonder if that was really on Zechariah's mind at all, that perhaps by this time as being an old man, he thought it wasn't possible to even have a child anymore and may no longer have been praying in that way because it would have probably taken a miracle. So maybe that's not what he was praying for. It's more likely, in my thinking, that at this one time, that he is able to pray in this way in that sanctuary, that he was praying for the redemption of Israel, that he was praying perhaps for the coming of the Messiah to make everything better, to make everything right. And I'm sure that the faithful ones who were outside may well have been praying the same type of thing. The Lord to forgive them of their sins. That was one of the prayers of this time of the day, for the Lord to deliver them from their enemies, for the Lord to send his Messiah. And I would imagine that those high thoughts would have been in the mind of Zechariah as he has his one opportunity to pray in this way. And as people are praying outside in the outer courts, do you not think that Elizabeth would have been out there probably praying the same kind of thing. And on this occasion where God's people were worshiping and praying, the Lord answers in an unusual and amazing way. Verses 11 through 14, we see the Lord communicates via direct revelation and answer to these prayers. Verse 11 says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, folks, put yourself there. You've read about angels in the Bible. You've read about their great power. You've read their descriptions. If you were in a posture of prayer and all of a sudden there's an angel standing next to you, how would you feel? 
What would your response be? Well, like everybody else we find in the word of God, Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. That always seems to be the case. And so the angel has to respond by telling him, well, don't be afraid. Don't fear. I've got a message for you from God. But he says here in verse 13, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. So again, what was he praying about? Well, as I suggested, it may not have been about having a son this time, but the beginning of God's prayer or answer to prayer concerning the redemption of Israel and the advent of Messiah. The faithful prayers of the remnant were finally coming to uh, realization because he's going to announce the forerunner is coming. But for Zechariah and Elizabeth, the prayer becomes a little bit more personal, doesn't it? Now note, as we read here, the angel says, your prayer is heard, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, you shall call his name John. But you've got the little word and in there, which seems to indicate that there is an extension to what he's been praying about. He's been praying about the redemption of Israel. That's the answer to that prayer. But then God says, and. He doesn't say, uh, your prayer is heard. Elizabeth will have a son. He says, your prayer is heard. And you'll also have a son. So what they had prayed for previously and may have left off praying for now is also being answered in this response of the angel sending the message of God. So the redemption of Israel's beginning and you and your wife are involved in it because you're the ones who are going to have the forerunner. You're going to have John. So God is kind of double answering a prayer here, one that may have even been uh forgotten by this older couple because they didn't think they could have any more children. And again, uh, this may have been too much for him to really comprehend. And when this all occurs, uh, it means that God is going to pretty much have to do something supernatural to bring it about. The Lord is going to work in supernatural ways to bring about his redemption, to call attention to what's happening here. And the Lord communicates with us today as we worship, as we pray, as we seek his word. Now, you know as well as I do, the Lord no longer communicates with us directly through angelic means. He doesn't have to because we have his word in our hands. It's complete. But the Lord does communicate still through his word, and the Lord does still answer prayer. And his program moves forward through the intercession of his people. When we pray for someone to get saved, what are we doing? 
We're asking God to bring redemption to that person. When we pray for missionaries, we're praying for the expansion of God's kingdom and that through them, uh, more will be redeemed and come into that kingdom. When we pray for God's will to be done in our lives, uh, in our country, in the world, we're praying that he will move his program forward and he'll use our prayers to do that. So what an encouragement it is for God's people today to keep on praying no matter how bad things seem to be in the world because we don't always see an answer right away or maybe we don't see it at all doesn't mean that somewhere God is answering that prayer. Now, we see something a little bit more negative here, though, in the life of Zechariah. As the story proceeds, we find that sometimes faithful vessels need to learn learn lessons about doubt. And Zechariah, when he hears this message from the angel about his son and what his son is going to be like and what his son is going to do, Zechariah doubts the Lord's message. Now let's just read the rest of the message and then we'll look at verse 18. The angel says, verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that's his work, to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. And when he ends that message, Zechariah pipes up in verse 18 and he says, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Do you see the doubt coming through? And really, perhaps it's reasonable in our minds. But it reveals to us that Zechariah is having a problem with God's word and how it will be fulfilled or how it could be fulfilled. And he reminds the angel, well, look, we're, we're old people. Uh, It would take no less than a miracle for us to have a child. It's too much for him to accept on the face of it, on the word that comes from God himself through an angel. And the frame of his question also suggests this doubt because he's saying, how can I be sure? How can I be certain? And his response is really tantamount to asking the angel or asking God to give him another sign. His word is not enough. He's got to have a sign to prove it. Now, Gabriel responds by revealing something about himself. And he says in verse 19, I am Gabriel who stands in the very presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. So you're failing to understand that you're getting a direct revelation from God. It's not my word you're doubting, it's his word you're doubting. So he's going to get a sign 
He's going to get a sign that he's probably not going to like very much. And he's going to believe as soon as that sign takes place. But he's not going to be able to tell anybody what happened until John is born. The angel says to him, Behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe in my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So it was an issue of doubt, an issue of not believing the word of God, an issue of of God sending a sign uh, to prove that his word was really true. And so he has taken away the capacity to speak, and the word mute may also indicate he can't hear. And later on, when the people come, they're gesturing to him, and that may indicate he couldn't hear, so he's deaf and dumb. So he's going to believe, but he's not going to be able to share that joy, at least not the way he would like to, with his mouth to praise God. We can't be too hard on Zechariah because sometimes our faith comes up short and uh, we don't respond properly to the word of God. But we can be assured that our lack of faith, our fears, our doubts, yeah, are still not going to mess up God's program. He's still going to carry things through as he has promised. And that's what he tells Zechariah here. And he also is going to continue to be gracious to us in spite of our doubts. We may have to be chastised. We may have to be punished. But it's not going to last forever. And when it ends, we'll have our opportunities to praise God even more. And we'll see that in the life of Zechariah as well. But it also brings us back to Elizabeth in verse 25. Now, as the story continues, uh, let's just catch up here. The people waited for Zacharias. They marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. Now, this, um, this, this action of service would not have really taken all that long. But time goes by, and nothing's happening. And if you were inside that uh, temple and you didn't come out, people would be wondering, maybe the Lord smote you. (laughs) Maybe the Lord did something to you. So they're just kind of getting a little antsy about this and worried about it because he took so long in there. Of course, we know why. But when he came out, he couldn't speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them, and remain speechless. So somehow he conveyed that something great had happened, but he can't explain it. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself for five months. We're not exactly sure why she did that. But the Lord, his word came true. They found out a little, a little while later. And then we have the response of Elizabeth to this event as well. In verse 25, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now she's thankful for what God has done, and rightfully so. But Elizabeth, although she is relieved and no longer faces that shame, she is still missing 
the big picture. Throughout her life of sorrow, and again, we're not exactly sure how old she would have been, but I would assume that she was probably in her late 50s or 60s, because in that day, if you lived to be 70, uh, you were really an old person. And all that time they were married, 40 years, 45 years, they've been praying for a child. Maybe they've even left off now because she's so old. And her, her disappointment has been now relieved. And this has been kind of a miraculous situation. And she has borne her reproach all these years. And perhaps the, the sidelong glances and maybe the sneers and snide remarks. And now the Lord has taken away that reproach that she felt so personally. But she's still missing the bigger picture. Right now, it's about her and about her feelings being alleviated and her needs being taken care of, but she's not seeing the big picture of what God's going to do through their child. She's obviously happy and joyful about her personal condition, but she needs to expand her thoughts now and look to the program of God being fulfilled through this child. And as the story goes on, we see that broader perspective as she realizes uh, the role that he will play and that even he will be eclipsed by one greater. And we'll see that a little bit later on. We're not going to go forward, but this isn't really the end of the story. And we're going to look at that a little bit later this afternoon. So as we close today, let's think about a couple of things. First of all, in every generation, God uses faithful vessels to fulfill his purposes. That means every single believer, despite the corruption of governments, despite secular society, the enemies of the gospel, the wiles of the devil, the world has always been an evil place. It's always been fallen. It's always been corrupt. And we as his people are the vessels of truth uh, that show that he is the one who's in control. He is the one who can give you contentment in times of, of uh, discouragement in which we live. And we need to convey that message of hope to the world. And the Lord's going to use those who are faithful and obedient and trusting. Those who plod on with the daily chores and afflictions of life, who serve him, even in times of doubt and times of fear, and those who follow him, even though they don't always see the big picture. And then we have this issue of prayer itself. Do you and I communicate with God in prayer? Do we believe that God will actually answer our prayers? Our faith can be severely tested at times, but we need to have faith in God's ability to answer prayer according to his will, within his purposes and for his purposes, even though we might not see an answer today or tomorrow or the next day or next year, we should keep on praying. And we have to realize also that we may not always see the answer 
in the way that we expect it to be uh, seen. It may occur someplace else, and we might never even find out till we get to glory how God answered a prayer. So we need to be faithful like this couple was and praying uh, for the Lord to work in this world. And then we could ask the question this morning, is there something in your life that you've lost hope about or that you've become discouraged about? We need to keep trusting that the Lord is working out his program in our life personally, as well as the bigger picture we've been talking about, and that he can use us as vessels of hope to help others who may be discouraged as well. And then finally this morning, let's never lose sight of that big picture. The Lord is ever working on the grand scale of building his kingdom. It's not always easy to see that in our times, but his program is moving forward. His people are in every corner of the world. His church is being built. His kingdom is growing. And one day it will be visible and we'll be a part of it. So let's be willing to be used of the Lord to further that kingdom as Zechariah and Elizabeth were. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today for the truth of your word and from these stories of people who only appear for a very short time in your word. But Lord, we see how you use them, how you use them in time of disappointment, how you use them in a time of doubt and fear, how you answered their prayers as they faithfully offered them up to you. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged by the example of this couple and help us in our day and age to be faithful, to be uh, prayerful, and Lord, to be trusting that we can be use of you to move your redemptive program forward. Bless and encourage us with these thoughts this morning we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.